Sometimes I'm really pleasantly surprised, but more often I'm disappointed. That's today's guest, composer and jazz educator Bob Washett, sharing some of his do's and don'ts for the next time you program one of his charts. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire, here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Bob Washett is Emeritus Professor of Music at the University of Northern Iowa, where he retired in 2018. He served as Director of Jazz Studies from 1980 through 2002. An accomplished jazz composer and arranger, Washett has received numerous commissions from collegiate and high school jazz ensembles, professional jazz artists, and symphony orchestras. During his 22 years as Director of the award-winning UNI Jazz Band One, they recorded 11 CDs, toured Europe three times, and were awarded three outstanding performance citations in Downbeat annual student music awards. Dr. Washit is in demand as a clinician and adjudicator nationally and has conducted all state jazz bands in 16 states. Find Bob's full bio, the show notes and resources at musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? Imitate, assimilate, innovate. I have always appreciated Bob's belief that all teachers can know some jazz, have the ability to demonstrate simple licks and expect their students to capture those nuances. What about you, Steve? Well, I had to cut so much stuff, and it was painful to do so, but you remember our original interview was well over an hour. So I boiled it down to what our listeners have come to expect from our episodes, short, practical, applicable. However, I do think some of our philosophical discussions could very much improve the teaching of our listeners who lead more advanced jazz ensembles at the high school or collegiate level, or anyone who just likes jazz and listening to people pontificate about it. So please check out the unedited bonus episode that we are going to drop next week. But in the meantime, enjoy this episode and how Bob talks about learning jazz by ear. It does not have to be transcribing a whole solo, and teachers do not need to be jazz experts in order to help their students with this important learning strategy in the jazz idiom. Do check out that bonus episode if you are at all interested in hearing uh, an unedited version of what we do. It will carry an explicit rating. Uh, It's going to be fun. Bob here has some nice quick hits on exercises and techniques that any director can use to get better time feel out of ensembles. Let's get to our conversation. Bob Washett, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm uh, honored to be here. Well, as I've talked to your former students over the years, one theme has clearly emerged. They love how you program for your bands. And this has been supported by audience members who also appreciate the repertoire you select for your concerts. I'm curious, how did you approach selecting a program for your groups over the years? I think it starts with being able to pick music that fits your band. And I think this is where a lot of high school bands that kind of go wrong, director miscalculates what the band is capable of and and ends up butchering a piece of music that didn't need to be butchered and doesn't really flatter anybody. Once that's in place, uh, when I think about programming, it's it's kind of a two-prong endeavor. You have twin responsibilities uh, to your students and the audience, and those are educational and entertainment. I think uh, you need to consider education uh, with the audience as well. You know, students uh, are receive a stronger education through the fact that they're introduced to different styles. 
so then one of the things I really tried to do was to uh, not play, you know, meeting the swing all day long and really uh, challenge the band and the listener with uh, playing and accepting uh, different styles. And so that was important. So I kind of uh, approached it like uh, planning a multi-course meal and considered the arc of the program, you know, the emotional arc. Uh, where's the apex? And, you know, like, what is, how do you, how do you bring the listener in right off the bat? You know, usually with something familiar, accessible. And then after they get that, then they're a little more likely to want to challenge themselves, you know, with something different, especially if you, the conductor, present it in a way that they can kind of, you know, something, give them something to hang their hats on. And then uh, you try to, to bring up, uh, you know, the arc in terms of excitement, but also, you know, there's a part of jazz that's on the other side of the dynamic spectrum. So something really soft and slow and uh, subtle. And then, you know, trying to leave leave the the listener with something that they like, a toe tapper of some sort. So they come back, you know, if the audiences don't come back, you got nobody to play for and it's nobody wins. The first thing you said about programming was to pick music that fits your band. Besides it being a little too difficult or too high, fast, and loud, what are some common mistakes that you see, uh, especially high school directors, make? It usually has to do with range uh, issues. When you hear a, a lead trumpet player dying on the stage, it, nobody has fun. And then when you have soloists trying to negotiate uh, chord progressions that they have no clue what they're doing, that's not good either, you know? So... Uh, those would be probably the two main objections. Let's move on to the topic of improvisation. Uh, I usually think of improvisation and composition along the same continuum with planned out scripted composition at one end and completely free improv uh, at the other. And in my experience, most musicians fall somewhere along the middle of that spectrum when they're playing a so-called improvised solo, meaning it's a combination of some licks they already know mixed with some spontaneous creation. I'm curious about your take on that concept, kind of as it applies both to your own play playing and also how you teach or how you taught improvisation to others? That's a great question. I think most jazz musicians are on that spectrum. I think depending on their experience, uh, they're going to play more regurgitated uh, licks and uh, things that they've learned if they're, if they're inexperienced. And obviously the more experienced, the less. Uh, so I think everybody lies on that spectrum at, to some degree, but I think context and experience have a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, what in terms of what comes out the horn in any given moment. In terms of my own playing, I've been told that I play like a composer. When I play an idea, I don't want to just let it go. I want to make phrase relationships and motivic relationships so that you're kind of tying your solo together, much like a composer would, you know, who has the luxury of time to contemplate these decisions. By doing that, you're 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 getting away from playing licks. You know, that doesn't say that plenty of licks don't creep into my solos, but but uh, uh, I think just that approach, playing more like a more compositionally, uh, really tends to reduce the, the the amount of stuff you rely on that you know. Uh, but I think you're right on the money in terms of it being uh, uh, everybody's plays licks at some point. I don't care who you are. And lastly, uh, as far as teaching goes, I stress vocabulary acquisition at the beginning. 
I mean, you got to learn to walk before you run. And this means learning licks and patterns. That's part of the deal. Not everybody agrees with this, but uh, that's kind of the foundation of uh, what I teach beginning students. And, you know, they need to sound like they're speaking the language or dialect, if you will. But the best thing is if they take these, if they learn these licks early, you know, by transcribing, then they're going to sound much more authentic because not you're not just getting the notes. You're getting the sound of the notes, which means articulation, accents, uh, phrasing, uh, sound, vibrato, and expressive, you know, and it's that's the real deal. And that's speaking the language or speaking the dialect. So how? let's talk a little bit about that. You said a good way to help them get beyond the pitches and into the rhythm style articulation is to learn the licks orally. Uh, my own struggle with this has been not necessarily teaching this to the medium and more advanced students who you can maybe give a solo, a recorded solo to, but for the students who are just getting started, there isn't that I know of a, like a quote unquote, real jazz solo recording that I could give someone who maybe only knows the first six notes of the B flat scale, if we're talking about middle school or, or high school, where they can learn that orally. Uh, so, uh, and I kind of know some of the answer to this question because I got to take your improv class, but, uh, so how, how, what do you mean? Talk about how, how the students who can't go and transcribe a Miles Davis solo off the recording quite yet, how can they learn these things orally? Well, the teacher, teacher can provide the model. I do a lot of call and response and it's usually involving some kind of a metronome. So there's a steady beat involved. And, uh, oftentimes they're, I teach like three or four pitches, maybe maybe just two pitches, maybe even one just to start with. So everybody gets that. But everybody can figure that out at some point, you know. And then you start to put that into a context. You know, you got this thing going on. And then you have them play it. And it has to be exactly like you're playing it in terms of the articulations, the lengths of the notes. And I uh, would tell them, if I make a mistake, I want you to emulate that mistake. And so uh, that's a way to get people started without necessarily their ability to to deal with a recording. What's your take on competition in music education settings? Bands within a program determined by audition, bands competing against one another at adjudicated festivals. How, how does competition fit into what has so far today been a, a discussion about art? You know, this is a cliche, but competition is a part of life. And we've reached a point now where, where, you know, we got this mentality in this country about everybody gets a trophy is kind of the way to go. And uh, I think competition is important. It's it's about survival. It's about uh, striving for excellence. But the big difference is there's two kinds of competition. There's healthy competition and there's unhealthy competition. And I've seen both in full view and uh i think it really in terms of uh, music education and and performing groups uh it has everything to do with director and to a lesser degree the parents we got to figure out why we're doing this and you know the reason to compete is to strive for excellence and just because you go to a festival and you don't win that doesn't make you a loser you know what i mean if you gave it your best effort and you know you did everything you could possibly done then you're a winner and you have nothing to be ashamed of and uh you have to realize that music 
competition is different than athletic competition in that you're you're being evaluated by uh, people who have different opinions about things, who hear things differently. And uh, sometimes you're going to play for uh, adjudicators who like what you're doing. Sometimes you're not. And it's like apples and oranges. Uh, you, you know, you, you do what you do to the best of your ability and, and then let the chips fall as they may. I've seen the dark side of unhealthy competition way too, way too much. Uh, in my experience, we had a student from one of the primary, you know, prominent Des Moines schools come to you and I to visit, to, to look at the school. And, and I, I gave her some time in my office to speak and ask questions and all that stuff. And, and I asked her if they enjoyed their experience at our jazz festival. And she said, oh, yeah, I says, we just smoked this other band. And I'm thinking, what? Uh, that's why you play music? And you know what? That, that girl who was uh, a really fine trumpet player was out of music in a year, was burnout. And so uh, directors who are just totally uh, bent on winning contests are doing a big disservice to music education in general. But I'm not going to say I don't like competition because I think it's really important. And if a director coaches his students to to like listen to other groups and try to learn from what they're doing and wow, look at they're doing, you know, you know, maybe we could do something like that or, you know, whatever that just trying to be positive about it. Uh, you know, I, I just think competition is important, but it has to be, uh, you know, treated the right way. How about within your own program? in terms of encouraging people to to practice so they can one day make the top band or the lead spot or get more solo space? Did you, how, do you talk about that? Do you cultivate any sort of specific, or did you, I should say, uh, any sort of specific approach? Well, I, it kind of varied over the years. Uh, I used to do a challenge procedure. So if somebody didn't play a good audition, they'd have a chance to, maybe at semester, to challenge uh somebody to, uh, to get into a higher band or whatever. And then I ended up stopping that because the people who were challenging hadn't done the preparation. It was a waste of time. It was just, you know, you know so if they're not going to be serious about this. I'm not going to uh, avail the opportunity to them. And, um, but I, I really think that, that, you know, you, you audition again, that's part of life. Uh, and, and you uh, have the chance to, uh, to grow and develop, you know, if you come in as a freshman, make the bottom band or whatever you, you have a chance to climb the ladder. On the other hand, just because you're senior doesn't mean <laughs> that you're going to keep that spot. And I've had some issues with that uh, <laughs> involving parents. Uh, but that's you stick to your guns. You know, uh, you you want to give the the people who are who are doing the work the opportunity. And at the risk of of uh, beating this horse even deader, just for the sake of our listeners, did you let? So if someone came in as, say, a first-year student and, and made the bottom band, did you just sort of let um, common sense take care of it that, well, if, if they, they'll understand they need to practice? Or did you, did you say, look, if you want this, if you want to get into this top band or you want to get more solo space, you're going to need to, to do X, Y, and Z to get to that point to get ahead of, of some other people? 
Yeah, I, I think I handled that on a case by case basis. Uh, usually if the student came in afterwards and was all upset, you know, I tried to explain to the best of my ability why a certain seating was made and that if you really want this, you can do this, but you have to do the work. You know, unfortunately, ego is involved in a lot of this stuff. And some students are, are again, doing it for the wrong reasons. They want to be in the higher band, not because they necessarily want that experience, but they want to show off to their parents and their peers that they're in this band, you know, and that's part of the immaturity, you know, with the, with the educational situation, but that's where you as a director need to, to kind of uh, clarify that for them. So uh, you recently retired from full-time teaching. I'm curious if you have looked back on your career and think about some things you wish you had maybe done differently or especially maybe some discoveries that you wish you'd made a little bit earlier. Wow. Um, you know, uh, I kind of look at like my career with my life, you know, I got a lot of things I maybe wish I would have done differently, but, you know, I think the whole thing with, 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 living and, and learning to teach is, is that you make you make mistakes, but you learn from them. And so I don't think I would do anything differently uh, because uh, some of the times I've been embarrassed because of something I've done or I've uh, just not done the right thing. Uh, I always, I like to think, I always try to learn from that. And then, and then, you know, you grow that way. And that's, I think that's, that's growth. I think one one regret, Steve, and I think you'll appreciate this, is I would I wish I would uh, have embraced technology much earlier. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but for me, technology was this scary thing, and you know, it just started to keep creeping up on me. And by the time I retired, man, I said I just dodged a bullet. I mean, there's so many aspects of technology that I probably could have really benefited from, but I didn't. So there's a regret there. When you hear your music performed, what are some of the most common things you find yourself thinking, oh, if they would have just paid more attention to this or that, it wouldn't have been that hard and it could have made a big difference? Sometimes I'm really pleasantly surprised, but more often I'm, I'm disappointed. Usually the level of performance is just not satisfactory, uh, either because the music is you know, beyond their capabilities or the preparation was just inadequate, you know. Usually, I guess, to to, to really pinpoint it is it's, it's a lack of attention to precision and detail. And I know there are lots of reasons for this, you know. Some directors have minimal rehearsal time and I understand their practical constraints. But to me, it's, it's, it's like, if we're going to do this, let's do this. So you talk about the um, lack of precision or attention to detail when you're working in a you, you get an hour with a band or two hours with a band if they bring you in. Uh, what are some of your favorite strategies that you're using in in those sessions, some kind of quick fixes to to address anything? I don't know if it's a quick fix, but um, and it usually comes down to, to rhythm. Back to that again, uh, rhythm and swing and feeling the the rhythmic pocket of whatever style you're playing and so this is something i did with my improv classes and i continue to do it with clinics and stuff and this idea of uh you know teaching the kids to be able to snap their fingers on two and four with a metronome and really splitting that meat right down the that beat rather right down the middle and uh 
once that's really starting to, you know, you get rid of the flams in there, you know, uh, once that's starting to uh, solidify, then uh, I'll give them this this uh, syllabic thing called, uh, the phonetic thing called uh, doodla. So in the swing, it's you know, you're you're dividing the the beat into three, which gives you the the rhythmic pocket swing. So doodla, and so they're all legato sounds, and the accent is on the last part of the triplet. So doodla, which is more more of a rhythmic anticipation of the next beat, and that's what really swing is about. So this is the drummer's hi hat, and then. The doodla is your uh, uh, right symbol. And just to feel that rhythmic pocket of that particular style really, really solidly. And to make sure everybody's you know tongue starts to work and get this thing kind of a flow on. And then take a particular part of the chart that's in question, you know, that has issues. And then underneath that, feeling that, that pocket, uh, sing the part so and this you know typically fixes so many things because you know rushing the uh upbeats is a, a real thing you know phrase endings are often on the end of four and they always get there early but if you're feeling that and that seems to kind of uh work but it's it's not uh you know one-off thing everybody can do it after that it's like you have to you have to keep drilling that, and I and I did that with my uh, college bands too. You know, just to really find it. And I felt that's probably the technique I've used more often than anything else. And I don't. I agree that might not immediately fix everything for the students, but it is often an aha moment for the director. And I feel like in that situation, as long as the director understands what you're saying, and then they can go implement that in their rehearsals, then it can it can go a long ways. So just for our listeners, just to to clarify, so it's very clear, uh, he's saying doodle and the do is on the downbeat so the accent that he's singing the doodle is on the the third note of the triplet um if we're thinking about an eighth note triplet so it could be easy as listening to that to let your brain take the the accent to uh you know or put the downbeat where the where his accent was you know steve another part of that was once the kids start doing this then then stop them and then say to the second trumpet player now you were the band director. You kick off the band. <laughs> it's like, all of a sudden, where am I? And so you help them, you know, help them try to lock that in. But but uh, you know, once that, you know that that feeling underneath the music, once that's like, uh, I call it an automatic pilot. If we have to think about that, there's no way we can concentrate on playing the the notes. You know, we have to feel this. And so the more you do that, put it on automatic pilot, and then you can concentrate on pitch and you know nuance and all that stuff so final big question how do you think the jazz education or just jazz in general landscape has changed for better or worse the last two or three decades well i i don't know if i can say better or worse i can just see what i've kind of observed and you know, i've been off out of the scene for nearly or four and a half years i guess now i mean i just think the 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 proliferation of, of resources is one big thing. The whole YouTube thing to me is just amazing. There is absolutely no excuse for people not to check out the music now. I'm 71 years old here and I practice with YouTube, you know, 
that's so much better than practicing with it, the play along stuff. I mean, and it just, God, it's just amazing. I think about the old days when maybe you go up and listen to a band, you know, the clinic, a band that they said, have you, have you checked out Count Basie? No. Well, you know, there's no excuse for that. You know, and it's just, that's, that's huge. I think uh, uh, the representation of uh, black musicians and, and, and women musicians in jazz education has increased. You can see that in faculties and uh, you can see it kind of records that are coming out now. Uh, women are so much more represented than they, they have been. So that's different. I also think that, that Latin music, uh, Latin influenced uh, jazz has, has really taken off in the last 20 years. And I like to think I had something to do with that, at least locally. Uh, and then uh, just technology-wise, the the recording, you know, the home and and and, and uh, uh, remote kinds of recording thing. You know, everybody can put together a pretty good product now without spending a whole bunch of money in a recording studio. I think the idea of websites and having the, the availability of charts, you know, just so easily with PDFs and stuff now is something that's pretty cool. And... Uh, I don't know, but I think I think the performance standard seems to be getting higher, at least in certain places. But I'm I'm not really sure. But that's my impression. What I wonder about, I guess, is the impact of the pandemic. What that's going to do to the music education or jazz education uh, situation? Because I know a lot of people really, really struggled, and I felt really a lot of empathy for the both the students and and teachers that had to deal with that. Well, Bob Washett, thank you for joining us today to share your insights on these important topics. Can we close down with the lightning round on a few lighter topics? Sure. What's your favorite dining establishment in the United States that you discovered upon retirement? Right before the pandemic and then just last March, uh, my wife and I went to uh, Charleston. And mainly because it's like... Uh, city of world-class restaurants <laughs> frankly and and uh of all the restaurants that we experienced in charleston the one that's been the best uh for many reasons is the charleston grill and uh uh it, it's the whole package the food is amazing the service is exceptional the ambiance is without peer there in the area and they always have a really great jazz group every night of the week playing a musical artist or a piece of music that you wish more people knew about? Just finished a bio biography by uh, of uh, Bill Frizzell. And uh, in reading that biography, I, I really loved the guy's stuff, but I realized how little I knew about the, the uh, amount of work he's done, uh, especially in different styles and genres. And then uh, I became aware recently, I think it just came out in the last couple of months, of a tribute to Leonard Cohen. You know, somebody I never really paid much attention to, but it was done uh, using uh, jazz musicians and, and singers and pop singers. And uh, they take all these Leonard Cohen tunes. It's, it's got this killing jazz rhythm section. And uh, man, the, the vocalists, you know, uh, Nora Jones and Gregory Porter and Luciana Souza is great. And there's a saxophone player I, I uh, discovered. His name is Emmanuel Wilkins. And I just read yesterday that he uh, is like one of the top 10 records in the New York Times, jazz records. So I highly recommend that. I think jazz, non-jazz, you're, you're going to like this. 
Do you have a book recommendation for our listeners? How about books? I've read two books recently uh, that both deal with the same issue, and that's uh, our relationship with the earth. And one is called The Overstory by Richard Powers. And the one I just finished is called uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer. They're just like really amazing poetic tomes on, on our relationship to the planet. What is a composition or an arrangement of yours that you are pretty proud of and you want more people to know about? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I guess if I gave it uh, a bunch of thought, I might come up with a different answer. But I think off the top of my head, I wrote an uh, Afro-Cuban piece called Uranus uh, that uh, you and I jazz band recorded on a record called Memento. And uh, it's it was like one of the, mo the most struggles I've had as a composer uh, was with that piece because it's through composed and highly contrapuntal and uh, about killed me. But after all said and done, uh, I was pretty happy with it. And finally, if you weren't a musician or teacher, what career do you think you might have had? <laughs> Don't laugh at this, okay? I'd be a professional golfer. <laughs> you know, I discovered golf midlife, and and uh, had I discovered it earlier, I don't think I would have <laughs> had any time for music. Well, Bob Washett, your influence uh, on Steve and myself and on educators and students across the country cannot be overstated. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's uh, It's been awesome. Hey, it's been a pleasure, guys. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www www.musicedinsights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. And let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.